my, as far as I know, the last scheduled time anyways that I'm speaking in the Sunday morning service this year. And so uh, I have always counted it a great privilege to be with you guys and, and certainly uh, uh, have that opportunity to worship with you as well on that. Uh, we want to go to Psalm 27 today. And I would say thank you for those songs that you sang this morning and uh, that we, uh, that I guess Pastor Doherty picked some of them. And it was just, uh, it goes really well here with things. I've got to let myself into my computer, I guess. There we go. <clears throat> Psalm 27 is where I want to be. And we're going to read down through the first six verses of this. I won't ask you to read responsively yet, but uh, but uh, we'll we'll read it. Uh, just follow along as we follow do this. And by the way, this is one of those psalms. It's a um, and I've kind of tried to keep to that theme this year as have I've had opportunity to speak with you. Um, it, it's titled in my actually in one of my bibles it says uh, on the title of it an exuberant declaration of faith and i i couldn't think of a better title i thought that is true and it is one of those psalms that david writes uh, as many of his psalms are that are really uh, he's declaring what he believes he's declaring all this truth about the lord and he's looking heavenward even in the midst of sometimes great dark circumstances that were around him and J. Vernon McGee, in his comments on this psalm, he calls it one of those he and me psalms. Uh, I like that. He and me, because it's about he, him, the Lord, and, and me, and that relationship that should point heavenward and to him, and it's an eternal relationship. So let's read Psalm 27. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies around about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Father, again, as we open up your word this morning, I do count it a great privilege And Lord, we pray we might have our hearts in tune with you, and truly, Lord, we would desire uh, to be seeing the Lord today in a better way, in a closer way, that we'd be drawn to you, O Lord, drawn heavenward. And Lord, I thank you for the promises found here in this text and for this declaration of faith. And Lord, I come before you again this morning, knowing that each and every time we open up this Bible, Lord, we are declaring our faith And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord is the light and my salvation. And it's interesting, Psalm, how this opens up and David writes about here some of the things you know. He doesn't only write about circumstances that are coming in in eternity. He's writing about also the enemies that were camped around him. And of course, if you study the life of David, you discover that it wasn't, he was not always a man that was, uh, you know, in the in the comforts of the palace as he became king. Actually, for many of his years, he spent running, running from people that wanted to take his kingdom. And for 
his own household uh, that rose up against him, and from his enemies that were numerous and surrounded his land. And in many different occasions, David probably came up against himself and against all those circumstances, and he absolutely had nowhere else to turn except to the Lord. If you looked at some of the words that he writes here, of the, the negative kind of words, he, he writes words like enemies, foes, hosts, you know, that's like an army. Though an host encamp against me, though war should rise against me. And I, I can't think of a more appropriate psalm, or at least a series of psalms in this collection, that would be appropriate for where we are today, right now. Now, you might not be facing the same circumstances that David was facing, and, and I hope not anyways, but we are in a world that is very dark, a world that is faced with great evils. And even this week, we were aware, made aware of that again in, uh, in the United States and also all through our world, all kinds of disasters that happen, all kinds of uh, murders and terrorist acts and those kind of things. And, and yet... The Lord is still faithful, and he is the one that we need to turn to in times of trouble, in times of good as well. And David does that. And really what David does in this psalm is he ascribes a hope in the Lord or a confidence in the Lord and a number of different things. Is like I'm going to just look at three areas in which he kind of reaffirms his faith or declares his faith in this one who is the Lord. And the first one, in verses 1 to 3, is really David declares a confidence in the Lord. He says that, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And he's making that bold declaration right there as he writes this out. And really, there are a number of things that give us confidence in the Lord uh, and David talks about that. Number one, he, he talks about the confidence in the person of the Lord. The very person of the Lord. And he says, the Lord, and then he likens him to a light, right? He is my light and my salvation. Those two words. I, I like to, you know, in my printed Bible, underline stuff sometimes and highlight them. And, and I underline those kind of words because that's what the Lord is like. And he expresses that desire to, to reaffirm, the Lord is my light. You think about that as a Christian, as a believer, uh, just like David uh, we certainly have the Lord as our light. When it doesn't look like you know what the next step is, and, and many of you are facing that as you step out of here in a, in a few really days to come, you're wondering, what will this summer bring? Uh, what, what's my next step in ministry? What's, what am I going to do this summer? What am I going to do you know, two weeks from now? Uh, and you're wondering those kind of thoughts. And some of you might have more insight to that than others, but ultimately the Lord has all light all knowledge. And as he reveals that to us, we follow him. And David, in those dark valleys of life that he faced and those trials, he could say with assurance, the Lord is my light. It reminds me that Christ is our light, isn't it? He said that, I am the light of the world. He made that bold declaration. Here it's Jehovah, the Lord, Yahweh, who is the light. And yet Christ also, without uh, stealing that away because Christ, Christ being fully God could make that same declaration when he said that in the Gospels. He also, uh, I think of Paul when he writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Who, the Lord, right, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Do you realize that you've been taken out of darkness and you have been brought into a kingdom of light? Wow, that's a great position to be in. That's a great kingdom to belong to, isn't it? 
Those that aren't part of that kingdom, they still grope in darkness as they seek ways and seek answers and, and look for hope and all those different things. And it's, it's not there without the Lord, is it? He also says that he's our salvation. And that word salvation, it's that same root word here. It's Yesha or Yesha. And uh, you also see it appear as Yeshua in uh, the Old Testament. And these are the forms in which it appears uh, most often. And it's the actual, Yeshua is the actual name Joshua or Jesus, the same name. And when the angel named, uh, gave the name of Jesus, remember in Matthew one twenty one, it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yeshua, literally in Hebrew, is what it would have been. The name of Christ, the name of Jesus. And he is our salvation, and his name means salvation. And he's saying here, the Lord is my salvation. He's delivered us from damnation. He's delivered us not only from sometimes present circumstances that entangle us and and hosts of enemies that could be around us, as David experienced. But as you read through this, David was not only thinking of the here and now, he was thinking about eternal things. And we know that we are saved from Sin, the penalty of sin, right? The power of sin over us that kept us in darkness. We've been saved from that. And we can say that same thing. We really can. By the way, you have to affirm it with those pronouns there. You see, the Lord is my light. I mean, it's possible to say the Lord is a light. And that is true, absolutely. But it's a lot different when you say the Lord is my light and my salvation. That personalizes it, doesn't it? Very much so. And it starts with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't get away from that. You can't at all. And students, and, and I remind myself of that all the time, that as we go through this world, we are to give an answer to the hope that is within us. We're to be quick to be able to do that and to provide that same invitation to everyone that they can truly say, the Lord is my light, my salvation. And he's able to save, isn't he? In this world, really, his salvation delivers us, and not only from those things, but it also seats us with joy in our hearts. And David, as he writes this, it's kind of a melancholy psalm, but as you get down to those latter verses we read, again, he points to the, to the Lord himself and the dwelling place of God, and that joy that would really wait us. That's what praise, it says in verse 6, that I will sing praises unto the Lord. That is an exuberant kind of joy to the Lord for what he's done and what, who he is. And that's what David's doing. And you say, how can David, who was facing such great trials in his life, some of his own making sometimes, because sin had entered into his life, hadn't it? And David had committed great sin. And also at times where David had uh, faced enemies that were, they were greater than him, for sure. And he was on the run, living in caves and hiding and having to live like a, a bandit on the, on the loose. And yet... God was right there with him, wasn't he? And later raises up David, establishes his kingdom. And in the house of David, of course, the Lord himself has a, will establish a throne, right? And you have that. But uh, honestly, this world, if you want to look around and find joy in it, you will find joyous moments and happy times. But really, you can't have a lasting joy except in the Lord. You really can't. Now, there might be people out there that think they have a lasting joy or have even a a fairly good life. And yet, all that will be stripped away someday as we face eternity. And everyone except 
barring rapture for believers, uh, we will face death. And even in death, can you have a joy to know that you will awake in the presence of the Lord? A few years ago in the Daily Bread, it appeared a, just a quote from Francis Schaeffer, who was a 20th century uh, philosopher, theologian. And he wrote this. He was being interviewed at one time, I guess it was during an interview when he was battling with cancer. He said this, The only way to be foolishly happy in this world is to be young enough, well enough, and have enough money and not give a care about other people. But as soon as you don't have any of the first three, or if you have compassion for the weeping world around you, then it is impossible to have the foolish kind of happiness that I believe some Christians present as Christianity. And in the context of that, he was referring to that, that it's not all about smiles and laughing and giggling and happiness that way, but a deep-seated joy that's in the Lord. The Daily Bread went on to say, What is your greatest need in life? Is it to be happy? We may long for a change in our circumstances, or sometimes that we may, we may even get that, but a changed life is our deepest need. Changed circumstances may make us happier, but a changed life will make us better, for it will make us like Christ. And you know, my friends, that is what David is affirming here before us as we read these words penned so long ago. He talks about that, the fact that God is our, able to deliver us from darkness and from damnation. Not only does he have a confidence in the person of the Lord, but he has a confidence in the performance of the Lord. I like that. Verses 2 and 3, he goes on to say this, that when the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And though a host, that's an army, should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, and though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. He was confident in the performance of the Lord. He knew that God would deliver him from those enemies that plagued him somehow, because God had been faithful to David to promise that he would. That doesn't mean for us that he always delivers us from every circumstance of life that is bad. Matter of fact, it's often the other way around. Sometimes Christians are called to suffer and go through great loss so that they might be more like Christ. But in the case of David, God had already revealed to David what he was going to do. And David, by faith, knew that no matter how bad it looked, God would be true to his word and was going to deliver David out of these things. And God did, didn't he? That's one thing that we can remain confident of and do that. And by the way, it's not, a, it's not an overconfidence. Sometimes people are like that, right? That just leads to pride and haughtiness when we're overconfident in ourselves, overconfident in others. And sometimes, you know, it's easy to do that. It doesn't matter what age you are, it's easy to do that. Young and old alike, we face that sometimes overconfidence. It reminds me of a a noted brain surgeon named Dr. Bronson Ray. One night he was out for a a walk, a stroll down the street, and as he was walking along, a, a young kid on a scooter came flying down the sidewalk, and the kid went right by him and lost control and hit a tree, head on, right into the tree. And Dr. Ray immediately went up, and, and he noticed that this kid had a severe head injury, and he looked, and there was a bystander there, and he said, go and call an ambulance. Quick, go call an ambulance. And so Dr. Ray began to tend to the child, and uh, a little crowd gathered around as the ambulance was uh, you know, getting ready to come. And, and a, a, a young boy 
broke right through the crowd. And he went up and he gave Dr. Ray a little push. And he says, you can leave now. He says, I'm a Boy Scout and I know first aid. Well, you know what? Sometimes we're like that, aren't we? Uh, we're overconfident that we have the skills to handle this and do it. And the reality is none of us do completely have the skills. He, he's given us skills. You are, as a Bible school students, having been here one, two, three years, some almost four, you know, you have more skills in your toolbox, hopefully, than when you started out this year. But you don't have all the skills, neither do I at all. David recognized he was utterly dependent upon the Lord, even as, as a king, as one that had trusted the Lord in those things. Well, David goes on to talk about another thing that, that drew him to the Lord and a commitment that he has, a declaration of faith. He says in verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And I like what David says here. He, he wants to uh, tell him that really he's, he's going to, one thing he's going to do is be near the Lord. Now, you know, you can move around this globe. You can face different circumstances. You can go anywhere, really, anywhere at all. I mean, and you know what? The Lord is still there. You can't get away from him, that's for sure. But in your heart, you certainly cannot want, be, want to be near him. That happens, doesn't it? But for the believer, we need to reaffirm that, Lord, the best thing that I have today is you and to focus our worship toward him and none other. Ultimately, he's the one that deserves it, but he's also the one that it's, it's the best kind of worship, right? There's nothing better. So, of course, why would you worship something else if there's nothing better than the Lord, right? A commitment to being near the Lord. And that's what David says here. He says in, uh, in that verse, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Does that mean that David only dwelt in the house of the Lord uh, in the days that he lived here on this earth? No, I think he's looking even eternal here. He's saying that I might all the days of my life. How long do we live? We live forever. We are eternal beings. There's parts of us that are eternal. (laughs) And we'll be in the presence of God forever. And David is reaffirming that in the now and also in the future, that he will be with the Lord. And I, I like what David says here. He wanted to be in the very dwelling place of God. He was going to set up his dwelling. And when you set up your dwelling somewhere, you're pretty committed to being near it, right? And that's what David says. I'm going to be near the Lord and linger near the Lord and be there. I think of Acts chapter 2 of someone I think Mr. Hogue preached on this around Christmas time, but in Acts chapter 2 in verse 37, and uh, not Acts 32, Luke, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 37. <clears throat> and it talks about a prophetess, a woman who was named Anna. And you have, remember, the child Jesus being brought by his parents to the temple. And there, uh, as he is received up, first by Simeon, an elderly man, who says, Mine eyes have seen the glory uh, of thy salvation, or the, mine eyes have seen thy salvation, the glory of thy people Israel, the, a light to lighten the Gentiles. I, I'm misquoting that, but that's, you know, he says in the gist of that. But then next person is Anna. He says, And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of uh, Phineo, of the tribe of Asher, And she was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and 
uh, four years, 84 years since most likely the death of her husband. So she was elderly. She was probably near 100 years old. And look what it says of her. Which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instance gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Wow. And there's just this little part of a paragraph about Anna, who's this elderly widow. And she had determined in her life that she would not depart from the temple of God. She stayed right there, near the Lord, near the house of the Lord, the very dwelling place of the Lord. You know what? She was privileged to see the Christ child as he came in to be dedicated. And I thought, wow, what a privilege. Asher, from the tribe of Asher. Blessed, is that, that's what Asher means, right? And she was very much a blessed woman for that. Life had handed her a difficult circumstance. She had had all the hopes and joys of a young bride at one time, and those were dashed when her husband died. And for 84 years, she remained a widow. She lived a hard life, depended upon others for that grace to even be sustained in this life. Probably if you sat down with Anna and asked her, what was your life like? It would have been a difficult life. But she went to the temple. There God provided for her. There God took care of her. But apart from that, she dwelt there fasting and praying because she wanted to see Christ. She wanted to see the Lord. David affirms the same thing, doesn't he? When in 27, uh, chapter 27 there, where he talks about that. I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. You know, What you become infatuated with, you will often see beauty in, right? I mean, that's just the truth. And you look on people's Facebook pages. I love that. You know, sometimes we have those uh, profile banners and everything else. And you can always tell sort of what people are like sometimes by that profile banner. I mean, I have friends on my Facebook page that have nice, shiny, bright red sports cars or something like that. And and you say, you know, he likes cars. Nothing wrong with a nice, shiny red sports car. I love to drive in one fast, but, you know, anyways. Uh, but, you know what I'm saying? Like, you become infatuated with something. It's up there. Sometimes it's a picture of your family. It could be a picture of a place. It could be a theme of some sort, but, you're in, you know, shows our interest, to say the least. But often you can tell by that. It reminds me of the farmer. The, he was a single man, and he posted a, a newspaper ad saying, Farmer, 35, seeking woman with tractor. Please send picture of tractor. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you're infatuated with something. You'll put value in it, won't you? For sure. Here, David puts the right value in the right place, right? He puts it in the Lord. He says, I behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And really, the beauty of the Lord is, is just that. As you go nearer to the Lord, you find that he is more attractive. He draws you closer. He's beautiful in every single way. You'll not find one thing that will ever cause you to to be repulsed by him. Because he's perfect in every way. And eternally we will be in his presence in the glories of heaven. And we will be looking at him in all his radiance and beauty. Wow. I think of uh, Matthew chapter 17. I'll just go there. Whoops. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples, Peter, James, and John, 
And they were led up onto the mountain with Jesus, onto an exceeding high mountain. And, and they came, it says, to, to come apart. I often wonder why there weren't more disciples there, and we don't know really. Was it Jesus maybe just invited those three? Maybe the other ones were just too tired to get up. <laughs> I, I don't know. We could speculate. I'll, someday I'll try to ask them if, that, if I'm concerned about that still, I guess. But look what these three disciples had this privilege. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, and his brother, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, his raiment was white as the light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. There's this great miraculous transfiguration that goes on in front of these, these mortal men, and they see Christ temporarily kind of unveiled. And I shouldn't say, like, his, his glory shone through. Because while he was here on earth, and John writes of it in his gospel, that he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as even of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John could say that experientially, that he'd actually seen the glory of God, but yet he looked into the person of Christ, the human man, Christ, who was veiled in flesh, and he could say he's fully God. The glory of God. He could say that. And of course, he goes on and talks about this, and you know, there's a, a white cloud and, and a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, and it goes on to them. And, and I like what it says down here. Um, I've got to go back a little bit here. It says in verse 8, When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. They were privileged in that time, that moment on a mountain, to have seen something nobody else had seen, or very few had seen, I should say. The glory of God. We will experience that firsthand someday. We really will. But as you draw close to him, it just becomes more brilliant and greater in that. Well, David is committed to being near the Lord. He's committed to loving the Lord or beholding his beauty, seeking his face. Those terms are used in that. He's committed to learning about the Lord. Uh, He says, I will inquire in his temple. Uh, I like that. The word inquire means to conduct an investigation. So if you want to know more about the Lord, you need to inquire of him, right? And uh, that's what David does. He seeks to go in, to be with the Lord, and to study him out. And it's the same word you could use to conduct an investigation on anything, like a crime or whatever. You think of uh, all the investigative hours that goes into a crime, for instance, uh, and somebody has to go, and they go through all the evidence, and they go through all the statement testimonies of witnesses, and they go through all the different whatever, today, camera footage, and all this different stuff that they have. And you pour through it in hours and hours and hours to build a case. David says, I will, I will inquire of the Lord. I conduct an investigation. And I can tell you that as you conduct that investigation and you learn more and more about him, you become more infatuated with him. And I can say experientially in my own life, when I am distracted from doing that, and I go and I throw my efforts into things of lesser importance as far as uh, you know, things that we shouldn't be engaged in or whatever, those things will take me away from him and my heart is quickly swayed 
in a different direction. And the answer to get back into those things, go right back to where he is and study him. Be with him. Have to do that. Well, verses 5 and 6, we have to move on here. He says uh, of this, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, and the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock, and now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. David is committed to not only you know, the Lord and, and looking toward him, but he's actually committed to being right there, and he reaffirms that God provides us protection and comfort in the midst of this. I like what he says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. The pavilion was the, the central tent that often uh, a general would set up his, his you know, seat in if he was out, and let's say going into battle, and the army had to encamp somewhere. The pavilion was the central part of the camp. And it was where the king would maybe dwell, or a top general, or someone like that. And David says, that's like the Lord. I, he's going to set me in his very pavilion, the center of the camp, the place that really is the most protected place. And that's what David says there. It reminds us that God has a sheltered place for us. A sheltered place. Where no one can harm you. No thing can get you. No sin will be be there. And that's certainly uh, in heaven. We will be drawn into that. But we are in him now too, aren't we? We're in Christ. What can separate us from the love of God, right? When Paul writes that in Romans chapter 8, down there, in Rome, oops, I think, yeah, there we go. He says this, What shall we then say of these things, or to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up from us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then he goes on to say in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sakes we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then Paul says, and he's echoing what David is saying. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are in Christ. You are in God's pavilion. David reminds us of that very thing. He goes on to say that not only is it a sheltered place, and he says he'll hide me there. Uh, A hiding place is, is pretty good when you need to hide. And you can run to Christ and he'll hide you. I'm glad for that. Because there's days that you just want to go and hide. You want to hide under a rock somewhere. Well, here in this case, David says, you're going to hide me on a rock. (laughs) I like that. Because he sets him upon a rock. In verse 5, it says that. We're reminded of that. It's a secret place for us. Verse 5, he says he's in the secret of his tabernacle. You think of that imagery in the Old Testament under Moses when the instructions were given to make the tabernacle and 
And last time I think we were here, we looked at the veil of the tabernacle. And it was that secret place, the dwelling place of God, a place where God met with his people. But he met through a priest, the high priest, or the priestly order that were involved inside those curtains and veils and that building called the tabernacle. And it was a secret place. You know, you could go up on a hill, perhaps, and look down on the tabernacle complex and see it from above. But you could not see inside it unless you were a priest. And the high priest, once a year, going into the Holy of Holies. It was secret. And David, who was not of the tribe of Levi, he was not a priest in that age, he affirms that he yet would be in his tabernacle, his dwelling place. Obviously, the earthly tabernacle was not the only dwelling place of God, and it was not the eternal dwelling place of God. The eternal dwelling place of God is the heavens. It is God who is omnipresent for sure. But we will be in a different tabernacle, a secret place. Secret not because it's only given to us, but it's, it's invited and anybody can be there. But it's only through one way, through Christ, right? Through the veil, through the blood, the only way into his presence. And it's a secure place for us, a secret place, a holy of holies. You know, To hide means to conceal. But it's also a secure place, and he says that he will set me upon a rock. I like that. The word rock there means a craggy rock, like an outcropping, and it's a, it's a solid piece of granite. That's the way I picture it anyways. That's how the Lord is. And though the mountains crumble, he remains, and he sets our feet upon a rock, doesn't he? Verse 6, And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. And we were talking about this, and Pastor Doherty mentioned the sacrifice of praise, or that term today referring to our sacrifices as we give to the Lord, our worship. Uh, I like that. When I was pastoring in Pasadumkeg Baptist Church, whenever we took up the offering, uh, they would stand as a congregation and sort of as a doxology sing the little chorus, we bring the sacrifice of praise, you know, that little song, and, and clap. And it was, it was so strange because I went there, and I originally got there, I thought, why are they so jubilant and happy? We just gave money, you know, but that's how you're supposed to give, right? And it was kind of neat. It was the attitude there. I can say that. The, the saints there at that church were very giving of their time and their energies and money, and they'd love to do that as a sacrifice of praise. And that was in their giving. And I say, that is that our heart attitude, whatever it may be, that he asks us to sacrifice for him? Should it be a joyful time? And, of course, uh, that's the way it is. And David reaffirms that as a praise. And it, this psalm kind of, or this section of the psalm, ends on a happy note, doesn't it, when he talks about that. God not only has a secret place for us and a secure place, but a special place. And uh, David understands that uh, he is going to be in his tabernacle. And he says, I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. That's where we're headed. And that's what we are, our eternal destiny is, to be in his presence forever, singing those praises. And often reminded of that when we sing the, the hymn Amazing Grace. And there, as John Newton penned those words, and he said, and if we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. And you know, that is so true, isn't it? 
We'll be there 10,000 years, a million years, a billion years. The years won't even matter. I don't think there's any concept necessarily of time in, in eternity because we're so bound by it here, and it's just not there. It's forever. I will sing of the praises of the Lord, and we're going to be doing that. It'll never grow old. It'll get so much better. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning again reaffirming these same things. Realizing who you are, that Lord, you are our God, you are our maker, our creator, our sustainer, you are our savior. And Lord, we come before you looking heavenward today, but Lord, we're mindful also of the great mission you've allowed us to be a part of here on this earth. And Lord, help us this week even to take opportunity to share this faith with others that they too could say that you are their salvation, my salvation. And Lord, again, we're thankful this morning for the word of God. And Lord, we pray you'd continue to bless it to our hearts and minds, even during these days, that we might draw closer to you. And Lord, truly, we echo the same thing the psalmist wrote, is I will sing praises unto the Lord. We look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.